This is Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Welcome to our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. And today I'm sitting with one of the true heroes of oyster restoration, Walter Zidane. Let's see now. Let me make sure I get this right. Zidane. Correct. Walter Zidane. Z-A-D-A-N. Walter, welcome. Happy to be with you. Terrific. So Walter is 90 years young. We, I think, say, claim that you are our, how should I say it, our most advanced oyster volunteer on the Chesapeake Bay. Mm -hmm. You're in Hampton Roads, Virginia, and you have been volunteering with us for how long? Uh, 15 years, but about eight or nine years in oyster restoration. And you've been a member even before that. Yes. So mm -hmm. let's just give the listeners a quick sort of review of what you're doing to bring back oysters and how and why you're doing it. Well, I was in the food business all my life, so there was a natural inclination for me to uh, become involved in the food issues. And uh, I was on the Speakers Bureau for a while, and then someone mentioned that they were interested in picking up oyster shells uh, at restaurants, and I thought, well, that fits right in with my background, and I like going into kitchens and talking to cooks and looking at the menus and so on, so I said, yeah, I think I'll do that, and that's how I started, and uh, I go to restaurants once, in some cases twice a week, and pick up oyster shells, and then I take them to a local collection area here in Williamsburg, and periodically every two or three months, a truck comes by and loads up the shells and takes them to the oyster farm over in Gloucester where they're put into a tank and then seeded with oyster larvae and eventually they are taken out of the tanks and put on some sort of a boat and taken out and planted in a, a location where we're uh, building oyster reefs. Yep. So that that's that's the that's the protocol, and that oyster restoration center is one of two that Chesapeake Bay Foundation operates. We have one in Maryland, and of course that one in Virginia, over there by the Virginia Institute of Marine Science. Correct. And um, the oysters, once they're set and uh, they're transported out to sanctuary reefs where they grow and do great things for the bay. Mm. So. Give us, a, give us a little bit of an idea about um, what you've seen over the last eight years you've been doing this or the last 15 you've been working with us one way or another. You said you started as a volunteer for our Speakers Bureau. Yes. Well, uh, I was interested. In, I, I came uh, interested in the Chesapeake Bay Foundation through a circuitous route. I do not own a boat. I've never wanted to own a boat. And I don't especially care for seafood except for crab, crab meat and, and rock, rockfish. But in the early 1950s, I was personally agent for a chain of restaurants in Baltimore. And you'd call the seafood dealer and you'd order rockfish and oysters and scallops. And it came in the next day and that was the end of it. And after several years, I left. And uh, after I retired uh, 30 years later, uh, I got a job teaching in a culinary school as a culinary instructor, and I was also given the job of being purchasing agent for the culinary school. And I was amazed to find when I called a seafood dealer, there were no rockfish. 
and further amazed when I found that the crab meat came from Venezuela and that uh, from time to time there wasn't enough flounder. And I wonder how could this possibly be? And I In the Chesapeake Bay that H.L. Mencken called an immense protein factory. Correct. Yeah. How could it be? And uh, I became interested in that. Uh, and so I became interested in it. And, and I went, at one time, I was invited to the White House when President Carter was there. We were 100 people from around the country were invited. And I met other people and who had essentially the same problem that we had in Pittsburgh. That is that when you try to make an environmental improvement, there is an entrenched group of people who suffer economic dislocation. They don't want to clean the water or clean the air or whatever it is. And it varied around the country. Some some places it was uh, mining companies, some places chemical companies, and some places they were uh, electric producing companies and so on. And, and I became aware that uh, we all had a similarity there that we, we, we the people, we the public were being abused by entrenched economic interests. So I became interested in it initially from trying to do something about um, fighting these entrenched interests that were polluting the bay and from that kind of generated the next step uh, having to do with uh, quality of, of uh, seafood and eventually that of oysters. You know, I think that so many people feel that way as well, that it's a matter of equity. And clean water, abundant seafood should not be something we have to fight for. It, it should be a right. And uh, those who, you know, take it away or infringe upon that right have, have no business under the law and, and under just the, the, the sense of fairness uh, with regard to a great resource that we should all be able to enjoy. Tell, tell, our li tell our listeners a little bit about the biology, the, the way oysters grow, and why it's so important to have these shells as the sort of very much the, the base of the food web when it comes to oysters, the base of their, their growth. Well, I, it is my understanding that in the wild, it takes it roughly three years for oysters to reach maturity. And, that, yeah. yeah, and uh, my under, further understanding is that if they are properly cared for, like being raised and washed, as is common among people who raise oysters, that takes half that time. And oysters, of course, are known as uh, filtration agents. Uh, they fill the 50 gallons of water. Uh, a day and they make the water cleaner and and that is a benefit not only for the oysters from a, a new, from an eating point of view but it makes an environment that was beneficial for other aquatic creatures fish and crabs and, and so forth so I was interested uh, in it and I think my participation uh, in the oyster projects uh, helps in that the overall population you can't look at just one part, everything is connected in the environment. Air quality is connected to water quality, and uh, crabs are connected to oysters, to rockfish, and so forth. So it's one big ecosystem working together. So you can't just segment uh, various aspects of uh, seafood. You have to look at it as a, as a total entity. You're, you're, you're really right on. and. 
you know, what's so critical is the fact that um, we're bringing back the oyster. The, the oyster in the Chesapeake Bay, because there's so many people like you and like the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and others working to restore the native oyster. And that's a critical thing to emphasize because there was a long effort to try and bring in a foreign species of oyster that would not be affected by the two parasites that, that, that affect the native oyster. And now that we've started to rebuild populations and their health and the density of oysters have improved, those parasites are no longer as much of an issue as they were in the past. Yeah, what I you're, find... You're, Part Go ahead. Of what I find interesting is I worked in New York for a long time, and, and, and my wife lived there for, for a number of years. And I remember the time when oysters were plentiful uh, in the Long Island Sound. And what is of interest to me, and I'd forgotten all about this, uh, is that there's a restaurant in Grand Central Station, Oyster Bar, been there for as long as I can remember, and it was well established before I became aware of it. And I remember going in there uh, when I was quite young, and they would talk about having oysters from different parts of the Long Island Sound. And they, there are people who preferred oysters from one area as opposed to another area. And recently, I was in a restaurant here in Williamsburg, and I was interested to find that they ha uh, they have four different sources for oysters because some people can can distinguish oysters from one location as opposed to another. As wine aficionados are well known to have this ability, I don't have that ability or perhaps that experience so far, but I found that extraordinarily interesting that the taste of an oyster, when you think about it, it's a logical thing, but the taste of an oyster can depend on its geographic location. You know, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, just like wines pick up the patois of the of the soil in the region, oysters absolutely do. And it, m m some will tell you it's more than this, but I think mostly it's due to salinity. So an oyster from Mobjack Bay is very different than an oyster from Eastern Bay in Maryland, and. Um, all of the oysters in the Chesapeake Bay are native Chesapeake Bay oysters. They're all the same species, but we'll we'll give you we'll we'll give you one from up the bay sometime, and then one from down in your area, and you'll see there's there's a real difference: the saltiness, the sort of brine brininess of a Southern Bay oyster, very different from a, a Northern Bay and Linhaven Bay. Linhaven oysters are one of my favorites. Well, I remember uh, when I was working in New York, my, my then boss was a real gourmet. He started a gourmet society and so on. And I remember him talking about, he had great knowledge of uh, food, of course. I remember him talking about how, um, oh, I forgot the name of, of, of that man in New York, a big railroad guy. And, and he used to like Linhaven oysters because the Linhaven oysters were the size of, uh, of a bread plate. In the restaurant. They're supposed to be a very large oyster, and uh, and I, I, I and then at that point I start to recognize that there were differences in oysters uh, depending upon location, and I lived uh, for a period of time when I was working uh, at the at the culinary school. I lived for a time right close to Lynn Haven, a uh, river, and I'm glad to hear that there are efforts being made to uh, resurrect. A population there. My understanding is they 
and found some oysters that somehow managed to survive. So the genetic code has not been lost, and hopefully we can get back to the days um, when we had that uh, that size oyster. It's, it was, it's, it was it's, Diamond Jim Brady was the guy who liked Len Haven oysters. He was the big railroad guy uh, in New York. Well, well, Walter, my dad was born in Norfolk in 1901. And he used to say to me, he called me Willie Boy. He said, Willie Boy, there's only one oyster worth eating, and that's the Lynn Haven oyster. It's the oyster of kings and queens. And he, he, he said they're as big as a butter plate. You have to eat them with a knife and fork. <laughs> that's, that's what my boss told me. Yeah, he told me that, uh, that, about that experience. That was interesting, huh? And one of our partner organizations that actually lives with us at the Brock Environmental Center, our headquarters in, in Virginia Beach, Lynn Haven River now has, was formed to, to bring back oysters to the Lynn Haven River and to get water quality to the point that you could eat those oysters. And Let's they've, hope so. they've, su yeah. they've succeeded very well, and I think half of the river is now open to oystering, and uh, they're they're making progress every year. Well, go I ahead. Was, I visited Brock Center. I, I was at the headquarters in Annapolis about seven or eight years ago. The last time I drove to New York City, and I I really enjoyed that. Uh, that visit and I enjoyed the Brock Center here too. It's an amazing building and my uh, the young fellow who um, used to live next door to me in Pittsburgh is now an architect in Chicago. He comes here on business from time to time and I told him that the next time he comes to town I want to take him out to see that Brock Center because he would be uh, amazed at uh, how self sustaining that building is a remarkable feat to have thought about and to have constructed and running that that building i call it the greenest building in the world and other people are saying the same thing it it really is fabulous we've got one to the south and one to the north you know the brock center is producing more energy from solar and wind by far by far than we use so it's 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 truly sustainable Walter, I want to let I want to I want to wrap it up, but I want you to talk a little bit about some of the other volunteers you work with and just how critical you are to this process. We've we've replanted five million oysters in the Lafayette River just in the last year, and, and we absolutely couldn't do it without the volunteers. Mm -hmm. Well, for a number of years, I worked. In fact, for about seven years, I worked solo. Uh, but recently, the uh, Virginia Naturalist Society became involved uh, with us. They became aware of the work that we do, and some of their members are helping us now. So it's taking off some of my workload. I don't spend as much time doing that particular task as I had done previously, and I welcome uh, their support, and I think it's important because the more people you have involved, the greater the involvement of, of people, the more awareness there is of society because each, each of these people will obviously go and talk to friends about what they're doing and so on and, and it's kind of a snowballing effect. More, the more people become involved in it, the more uh, uh, education is uh, provided to the public and the more interested, therefore, the greater the interest in, in the whole issue of protecting the Chesapeake Bay. 
So I think that uh, I'm very pleased to have those people with us and, and uh, I look forward to having more restaurants in that area uh, participate in the program so that I keep everybody very busy. Well, that, let's, let's emphasize that because it's really critical for all restaurants. And we collect shell from Pennsylvania all through Maryland and Virginia. But as you say, more restaurants can do this to let us and others know that they're willing to donate the shell back so we can get it back in the water, which is critical for oyster restoration. Oysters like to grow on other oysters, and that's the way you build a reef. Well, Walter, you, 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 you got a real fan in our Virginia Oyster Restoration Manager, Jackie Shannon. She says you've been just a terrific volunteer for many years. And, and, and you've told me that the, um, the essence of, of good life in, in an, in, as, you, as you advance in your age is to eat good food, do a lot of exercise, and stay connected to society and feel like you're doing something good. You've, you've been a model of that. Well, I enjoy the people I meet at Chesapeake Bay Foundation. I think it's made me, actually, I think it's made me healthier. And uh, it certainly added pleasure to my life, and I look forward to working with him for years in the future. Well, Walter Zidane, this is Will Baker, president of Chesapeake Bay Foundation, our continuing podcast series. Thank you so much, and uh, don't ever lose your, uh, your drive and your energy and your optimism to make the world a better place. Thank you. It was a pleasure speaking to you, Will. All right, Walter. Good time. Thank you.